Chapter thirty two of The Bent Twig by Dorothy Canfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty two Much Ado. The rest of October was a period never clear in Sylvia's head. Everything that happened was confusing, and almost everything was painful, and a great deal happened. She had thought at the time that nothing would ever blur in her mind the shock of finding Aunt Victoria opposed to what seemed to her the first obvious necessity, writing to Judith about Arnold. She had been trying for a long time now with desperate sincerity to take the world as she found it, to see people as they were with no fanatic intolerance, to realize her own inexperience of life, to be broad, to take in without too much of a wrench, another point of view. But to Aunt Victoria's idea, held quite simply and naturally by that lady, that Judith be kept in ignorance of Arnold's habits until after marriage, Sylvia's mind closed as automatically, as hermetically, as an oyster-shell snaps shut. She could not discuss it. She could not even attend with hearing ears to Mrs. Marshall Smith's very reasonable presentation of her case. The long tradition as to the justifiability of such ignorance on a bride's part, the impossibility that any woman should ever know all of any man's character before marriage, the strong presumption that marriage with a woman he adored would cure habits, contracted only through the inevitable aimlessness of too much wealth, the fact that, once married, a woman like Judith would accept, and for the most part deal competently with, facts which would frighten her in her raw, girlish state of ignorance and crudeness. Sylvia did not even hear these arguments, and many more like them, dignified with the sanction of generations of women trying their best to deal with life. She had never thought of the question before. It was the sort of thing from which she had always averted her moral eyes with extreme distaste. But now that it was forced on her, her reaction to it was instantaneous. From the depths of her there rose up fresh in its original vigor, never having been dulled by a single enforced compliance with the convention running counter to a principle, the most irresistible instinct against concealment. She did not argue. She could not. She could only say, with a breathless certainty, against which there was no holding out. Judith must know. Judith must know. Mrs. Marshall Smith, alarmed by the prospect of a passage at arms, decreed quietly that they should both sleep on the question and take it up the next morning. Sylvia had not slept. She had lain in her bed, wide-eyed, a series of pictures passing before her eyes with the unnatural vividness of hallucinations. These pictures were not only of Arnold, of Arnold again, of Arnold and Judith. There were all sorts of odd bits of memories, a conversation overheard years before between her father and Lawrence, when Lawrence was a little, little boy. He had asked, it was like Lawrence's eerie ways, apropos of nothing at all, what sort of a man was Aunt Victoria's husband? His father had said, a rich man, very rich. This prompt appearance of readiness to answer had silenced the child for a moment. 
and then sylvia could see his thin little hands patting down the sand cake he was making he had persisted what kind of a rich man his father had said well he was bald quite bald lawrence come run a race with me to the woodshed sylvia now ten years later wondered why her father had evaded what kind of a man had arnold's father been but chiefly she braced herself for the struggle with aunt victoria in the morning it came to her in fleeting glimpses that aunt victoria would be only human if she resented with some heat this entire disregard of her wishes that the discussion might very well end in a quarrel and that a quarrel would mean the end of lydford with all that lydford meant now and potentially but this perception was swept out of sight like everything else in the singleness of her conviction judith must know judith must know there was however no struggle with aunt victoria in the morning mrs marshall smith encountering the same passionate outcry recognized an irresistible force when she encountered it recognized it in fact soon enough to avoid the long drawn-out acrimony of discussion into which a less intelligent woman would inevitably have plunged recognized it almost but not quite in time to shut off from sylvia's later meditations certain startling vistas down which she had now only fleeting glimpses very well my dear said mrs marshall smith her cherished clarity always unclouded by small resentments very well we will trust in your judgment rather than my own i don't pretend to understand present-day girls though i manage to be very fond of one of them judith is your sister you will do of course what you think is right it means of course judith being what she is that she will instantly cast him off and arnold being what he is that means that he will drink himself into delirium tremens in six months his father she stopped short closing with some haste the door to a vista and poured herself another cup of coffee they were having breakfast in her room both in negligee and lacy caps two singularly handsome representatives of differing generations mrs marshall smith looked calm sylvia extremely agitated she had been awake at the early hour of deadly pale dawn when a swift long-barreled car had drawn up under the porte cochere and arnold had been taken away under the guard of a short broad brawny man with disproportionately long arms she was not able to swallow a mouthful of breakfast during the night she had not looked an inch beyond her blind passion of insistence now that aunt victoria yielded with so disconcerting a suddenness she faced with a pang what lay beyond oh judith wouldn't cast him off she loves him so she'll give him a chance you don't know judith she doesn't care about many things but she gives herself up absolutely to those that do matter to her she adores arnold it's fairly frightened me to see how she was burning up when he was near she'll insist on his reforming of course she ought to but suppose he doesn't reform to suit her suggested mrs marshall smith stirring her coffee he's been reformed at intervals ever since he was fifteen 
he never could stay through a whole term in any decent boys' school. Here was a vista, ruthlessly opened. Sylvia's eyes looked down it and shuddered. Poor Arnold, she said under her breath, pushing away her untasted cup. I'm dull enough to find you take an odd way to show your sympathy for him, murmured Mrs. Marshall Smith, with none of the acidity the words themselves seemed to indicate. She seemed, indeed, genuinely perplexed. It's not been exactly a hilarious element in my life, either. But I've always tried to hold on to Arnold. I thought it my duty. And now, since Felix Morrison has found this excellent specialist for me, it's much easier. I telegraph to him, and he comes at once, and takes Arnold back to his sanitarium till he's himself again. For the first time in weeks, Morrison's name brought up between them no insistently present, persistently ignored shadow. The deeper shadow now blotted him out. But, Aunt Victoria, it's for Judith to decide. She'll do the right thing. Sometimes people are thrown by circumstances into a situation where they wouldn't have dreamed of putting themselves, and yet they rise to it and conquer it philosophize Aunt Victoria. Life takes hold of us with strong hands and makes us greater than we thought. Judith will mean to do the right thing. If she were married, she'd have to do it. It seems to me a great responsibility you take, Sylvia. You may, with the best of intentions in the world, be ruining the happiness of two lives. Sylvia got up, her eyes red with unshed tears, it was not the first time that morning. It's all too horrible, she murmured. But I haven't any right to conceal it from Judith. Her eyes were still red when, an hour later, she stepped into the room again and said, I've mailed it. Her aunt, still in lavender silk negligee, so far progressed towards the day's toilet as to have her hair carefully dressed, looked up from the revue bleu and nodded her expression was one of quiet self-possession sylvia came closer to her and sat down on a straight-backed chair she was dressed for the street and hatted as though she herself had gone out to mail the letter and now tantine she said with the resolute air of one broaching a difficult subject i think i ought to be planning to go home very soon it was a momentous speech, and a momentous pause followed it. It had occurred to Sylvia, still shaken with a struggle over the question of secrecy, that she could, in decency, only offer to take herself away after so violently antagonizing her hostess. She realized with what crude intolerance she had attacked the other woman's position, how absolutely with claw and talon she had demolished it. She smarted with the sense that she had seemed oblivious of an obligation. She detested the sense of obligation. And having become aware of a debt due her dignity, she had paid it hastily on the impulse of the moment. But as the words still echoed in the air, she was struck to see how absolutely her immediate future, all her future, perhaps, depended on the outcome of that conversation she herself had begun. She looked fixedly at her aunt, 
trying to prepare herself for anything. But she was not prepared for what Mrs. Marshall Smith did. She swept the magazine from her lap to the floor and held out her arms to Sylvia. "'I had hoped, I had hoped you were happy with me,' she said, and in her voice was that change of quality, that tremor of sincerity which Sylvia had always found profoundly moving. The girl was overcome with astonishment and remorse and immense relief. She ran to her. "'Oh, I am, I am! I was only thinking. I've gone against your judgment.' Her nerves stretched with a sleepless night, and the strain of writing the dreadful letter to Judith gave way. She broke into sobs. She put her arms tightly around her aunt's beautiful neck and laid her head on her shoulder. Weeping, her heart swelling, her mind in a whirling mass of disconnected impressions. Arnold! Judith! How strange it was that Aunt Victoria really cared for her. Did she really care for Aunt Victoria, or only admire her? Did she really care for anybody, since she was agreeing to stay longer away from her father and mother? How good it would be not to have to give up Helene's services! What a heartless, materialistic girl she was! She cared for nothing but luxury and money. She would be going abroad now to Paris. Austin Page, he had kissed her hand, and yet she felt that he saw through her saw through her mean little devices and stratagems how astonishing that he should be so very very rich it seemed that a very very rich man ought to be different from other men his powers were so unnaturally great girls could not feel naturally about him and all the while that these varying reflections passed at lightning speed through her mind her nervous sobs were continuing Aunt Victoria taking them, naturally enough, as signs of continued remorse, lifted her out of this supposed slough of despond, with affectionate peremptoriness. Don't feel so badly about it, darling. We won't have any more talk for the present about differing judgments, or of going away, or of anything uncomfortable. And in this way, with nothing clearly understood, on a foundation indeed of misunderstanding, the decision was made, in the haphazard fashion which characterizes most human decisions. The rest of the month was no more consecutive or logical. Into the midst of the going-away confusion of a household about to remove itself half around the world, into a house distracted with packing, cheerless with linen covers, desolate with rolled-up rugs and cold lunches and half-packed trunks, came, in a matter-of-fact manner, characteristic of its writer, Judith's answer to Sylvia's letter. Sylvia opened it, shrinking and fearful of what she would read. She had, in the days since hers had been sent, imagined Judith's answer in every possible form, but never in any form remotely resembling what Judith wrote. The letter stated in Judith's concise style that, of course, she agreed with Sylvia that there should be no secrets between betrothed lovers, nor, in this case, were there any. Arnold had told her, the evening before she left Lydford, that he had inherited an alcoholic tendency from his father. She had been in communication with a great specialist in Wisconsin about the case, 
She knew of the sanitarium to which Arnold had been taken, and did not like it. The medical treatment there was not serious. She hoped soon to have him transferred to the care of Dr. Rivdahl. If Arnold's general constitution were still sound, there was every probability of a cure. Doctors knew so much more about that sort of thing than they used to. Had Sylvia heard that Madame LaRue was not a bit well, that old trouble with her heart, only worse? They'd been obliged to hire a maid. How in the world were the LaRues going to exist on American cooking? Cousin Parnelia said she could cure Madame with some sanopractic nonsense, a new fad that Cousin Parnelia had taken up lately. Professor Kennedy had been elected vice-president of the American Mathematical Association, and it was funny to see him try to pretend that he wasn't pleased. Mother's garden this autumn was... Well, ejaculated Sylvia, stopping short. Mrs. Marshall Smith had stopped to listen in the midst of the exhausting toil of telling Helene which dresses to pack and which to leave hanging in the Lidford house. She now resumed her labors unflaggingly, waving away to the closet a mauve satin and beckoning into a trunk a favorite black-and-white chiffon. To Sylvia, she said, Now I know exactly how a balloon feels when it is pricked. Sylvia agreed ruefully. I might have known Judith would manage to make me feel flat if I got wrought up about it. She hates a fuss made over anything, and she can always take you down if you make one. She remembered, with a singular feeling of discomfiture, the throbbing phrases of her letter, written under the high pressure of the quarrel with Aunt Victoria. She could almost see the expression of austere distaste in the stern young beauty of Judith's face. Judith was always making her appear foolish. "'We were both of us,' commented Mrs. Marshall-Smith dryly, "'somewhat mistaken about the degree of seriousness with which Judith would take the information.' Sylvia forgot her vexation and sprang loyally to Judith's defense. "'Why, of course, she takes it like a trained nurse, like a doctor, feels it a purely medical affair, as I suppose it is.' We might have known she'd feel that way. But as to how she really feels inside, personally, you can't tell anything by her letter. You probably couldn't tell anything by her manner if she were here. You never can. She may be simply wild about a thing inside, but you'd never guess. Mrs. Marshall Smith ventured to express some skepticism as to the existence of volcanic feelings always so sedulously concealed. After all, can you be so very sure that she is ever simply wild if she never shows anything? Oh, you're sure, all right, if you've lived with her. You feel it. And then, after about so long a time of keeping it down, she breaks loose and does something awful that I'd never have the nerve to do and tears into flinders anything she doesn't think is right. Why, when we were little girls and went to the public schools together, two of our little playmates, who turned out to have a little negro blood, we... Sylvia stopped, suddenly warned by some instinct that Aunt Victoria would not be a sympathetic listener to that unforgotten episode of her childhood, that episode which had seemed to have no consequences, 
no sequel, but which ever since that day had insensibly affected the course of her growth, like a great rock fallen into the current of her life. Mrs. Marshall-Smith, deliberating with bated breath between broadcloth and blue Panama, did not notice the pause. She did, however, add a final comment on the matter. Some moments later, when she observed, how any girl in her senses can go on studying when she's engaged to a man who needs her as much as arnold needs judith to which sylvia answered irrelevantly with a thought which had just struck her thrillingly but how perfectly fine of arnold to tell her himself she must have hypnotized him said mrs marshall smith with conviction but then i don't pretend to understand the ways of young people nowadays she was now forty-five, in the full bloom of a rarely preserved beauty, and could afford to make remarks about the younger generation. At any rate, she went on, it is a comfort to know that Judith has set her hand to the wheel. I have not in years crossed the ocean with so much peace of mind about Arnold as I shall have this time, said his stepmother. No, leave that blue boy, Helene. The collar never fitted. Oh, he doesn't spend the winters in Paris with you? asked Sylvia. He's been staying here in Lydford of late, crazy as it sounds. He was simply so bored that he couldn't think of anything else to do. He has, besides, an absurd theory that he enjoys it more in winter than in summer. He says the natives are to be seen then. He's been here from his childhood. He knows a good many of them, I suppose. Now, Helene, let's see the gloves and hats. It came over Sylvia with a passing sense of great strangeness that she had been in this spot for four months, and, with the exception of the men at the fire, she had not met, had not spoken to, had not even consciously seen a single inhabitant of the place. And in the end, she went away in precisely the same state of ignorance. On the day they drove to the station, she did, indeed, give one fleeting glimpse over the edge of her narrow prison-house of self-centered interest. Surrounded by a great many strapped and buckled pieces of baggage, with Helene, fascinatingly ugly in her serf's uniform, holding the black leather bag containing Aunt Victoria's jewels, they passed along the street for the last time, under the great elms, already almost wintry with their bare boughs. Now that it was too late, Sylvia felt a momentary curiosity about the unseen humanity which had been so near her all the summer. She looked out curiously at the shabby vehicles. It seemed to her that there were more of them than in the height of the season, at the straight-standing, plainly-dressed, briskly-walking women and children. There seemed to be a new air of life and animation about the street now that most of the summer cottages were empty and at the lounging, indifferent, powerfully built men. She wondered, for a moment, what they were like, with what fortitude their eager human hearts bore the annual display of splendor they might never share. They looked, in that last glimpse, somehow quite strong, as though they would care less than she would in their places. Perhaps they were only hostile, not envious. I dare say, said Aunt Victoria, glancing out at a buckboard, very muddy as to wheels, crowded with children. 
that it's very forlorn for the natives to have the life all go out of the village when the summer people leave. They must feel desolate enough. Sylvia wondered. The last thing she saw as the train left the valley was the upland pass between Windward and Hemlock Mountains. It brought up to her the taste of black birch, the formidably clean smell of yellow soap, and the rush of summer wind past her ears. End of chapter 32